Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Dubin, freelance writer, long time for 538, and have a great conversation. Start out with the NBA Finals, takeaways from the first three games, the evolution and development of role players, which I thought was a great part of the conversation. Then we talk a little bit about the offseason, some of the big negotiations that need to happen, and our some of our beefs with the upcoming new CBA. Episode is brought to you by FanDuel. Go to FanDuel.com slash Boston and get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. This episode is just under an hour. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Always a good time. We are recording this the day after Game 3, so the day between Games 3 and 4. And instead of setting the table, I will let you kind of talk about where you are in this series at the moment. I am in a similar place as I was before the series, where I'm pretty confident in my pick of Denver, just because I think, and Gabe Vincent said this after the game last night, I just think Miami's margin for error is so small. They have to do so many things exactly right to even have themselves in the game. And even in a game where Denver, like last night, makes only five threes and gets outscored by 18 points from behind the arc, the Nuggets are still able to find a way to win in that game because they can just get so many easy shots. And with Miami, it's like unless they're making half their threes again and i think last night they shot pretty well from three but even that wasn't enough because they shot 40 percent or i guess they only shot 31 percent on threes last night but they shot 40 percent on twos which is like you're never gonna win shooting that way and Jokic's rim protection was incredible in last night's game it's just like there's there's too much deficit i think for miami to overcome to win i guess now three out of four is uh is sort of where i'm at and Honestly, that was kind of where I was before the series. So game two didn't throw me off quite as much as it maybe did other people, I don't think. Where where are you at? Similar. I, I think that there are, I mean, we've seen the template. Miami can win games against this team. They can win teams against anybody. They are they are a good squad and when they when they're defending well, when they're shooting well, the capacity is there. And Miami has I don't know if we could call it a standard, but they played to a level sufficient to win games in this series at different moments throughout the playoffs. And they've also benefited, like most teams do, from having, particularly in the Knicks series, where the threshold wasn't as high, where they didn't have to play to that level and they were still able to handle the series. The Nuggets present a different challenge because their offense is pretty consistently effective. Like, Miami is a a very good defense. I don't think Game 3 was their best performance, but Miami is a a good defense. But the challenge is Denver is going to score pretty well against almost everybody if not everybody, like we might even be, the almost might not be necessary anymore. So what that means is you still have to defend well, because if you don't, then they'll run even more rough shot over you. And like Miami's transition defense has generally been excellent in this series, but they're half court, you know, the Nuggets are hard to stop. So that's what gets to the margin of error that we're talking about, is that if, if you can only do so much defending Denver, even if you have great personnel, even if you're doing things right, unless like Jokic gets in foul trouble or something else, then you need to outscore them. And that is a difficult thing for the Miami Heat. It's a difficult thing for almost anybody, but especially for Miami, because they don't have that many players that can consistently create advantages. And then they also, their players who convert those advantages can be inconsistent. Yeah, I mean, Denver's worst offensive game of the series was game one when they were at like 114 points per 100 possessions. The last couple games, they've been at 124 and 120. The one game that Miami won was because, you know, they shot like 48% from three. They had a 128 offensive rating in game two. And the other two games, they've been at 102 and 104. And it's just Denver throughout the postseason, I think, has like... I'm looking at it now. They've been above 120 in 11 of 18 games. And, like, you have to score to beat them, basically. And 
it's it's a, it's a difficult proposition when their defense is actually locked in like it was in game one and like it was last night. Game two, they just got really incredibly sloppy. Like I wrote about a whole bunch of different defensive mistakes that they made in that game. Like KCP fouled two three-point shooters. Michael Porter Jr. was like, I, I've rarely seen somebody so lost on the perimeter on defense. Uh, the Browns, Christian Brown and Bruce Brown, blew back-to-back switches on the same action in the same spot on the court. Jamal Murray got beat on like back-to-back closeouts by Duncan Robinson. Like These were you know mistakes that should not be made by a team playing good team defense in the playoffs like the Nuggets were for most of their playoff run and you saw in game three they mostly cleaned that up they you know they had a couple of mistakes here and there but it wasn't anything like in the previous game and it just seems like with Denver's size and athleticism and and the way Yoga just protected the rim in two of the three games so far then Miami sort of needs Denver to be making those mistakes to get what they want offensively. And at least for me, I don't want to speak for you necessarily. Miami is capable of doing that from time to time. But the the reason I picked Denver, and I said before the series that I would have picked this in five if I didn't have so much respect for Miami, like Spo and everyone else. And so I ended up picking it in six, is that it's a heavy lift and it's a lift they are capable of, but asking a team to do it four out of seven times is a lot. And especially when they started out the series at such a rest deficit and we saw what happened in game one. And the other... And I, I'm trying hard not to to overreact to this, but like I was asked in in the Discord chat on Dunked on Prime about a week ago about like have I revisited any of my priors in this postseason? And one that I'm in the process of revisiting is this idea of how you square offense versus defense. And for years now, I've obsessed over like undeniability for players. And I guess you could say to a lesser extent for teams, it's harder for a team to be undeniable in some ways than than a player, because that's just how things work. And so I've always had this idea that the, the kind of the pathway to being a viable championship team is being a lead on one end and at least very good on the other. Pretty good, very good, you know, like you, you can, and then if you could be a lead on both, then you're golden. And I, for a long time, thought that there wasn't, that there wasn't necessarily a huge difference. I mean, it, there is in terms of how it manifests, but in terms of like likelihood of success between whether that's an elite defense and a pretty good offense or an elite offense and a pretty good defense, very good, however you want to do it. And that, I'm rec- I'm trying to reconcile that because I've always talked about undeniability because offense is, you know, in many ways, offenses dictate the action to a larger degree because defense has to be at least in part reactionary. And what the, this Nuggets team, albeit in a context where there aren't as many elite squads as there can be, is indicating to me is that there's a possibility, and I think it's becoming a probability in my mind, that if I had to choose, I would choose the elite offense because of the pressure that puts on your opponents. This is something that uh, our, our mutual friend Seth Partnow talked about at some point late in the regular season. He was talking about basically the difference between people's confidence level in the Nuggets and the Bucks going into the playoffs, where they basically had opposite problems, where Denver's offense was elite and its defense was like okay to questionable. And Milwaukee's defense was elite and its offense was okay to questionable. But people felt, I think, generally a little bit more confident in Milwaukee than they did in Denver. Um, For whatever it's worth, I was on the opposite for most of the season. And then at the end of the regular season, I flipped because I'm weak. (laughs) (laughs) But basically, Seth's point was that offense tends to translate better to the playoffs than defense does. So why aren't we more confident in the Nuggets than we are in the books. And I think that's sort of been borne out. And I think we see that in other sports too. Like your offense translates more to the playoffs a lot of times than your defense does. And I think that that's probably the case in the NBA. And I think that's probably why you're starting to lean that way, especially because, you know, you can just play your best guys in the playoffs and your best guys are most likely going to be the ones for the most part that are better on defense too. Like Denver is not putting DeAndre Jordan or Thomas Bryant or Reggie Jackson on the court. And all of those minutes are being soaked up by the starters and Bruce Brown and Christian Brown and Jeff Green. And now they're better on defense than they were during the regular season because they're, you know, for the most part, not putting any horrendous defenders on the court. Like their worst defender 
is Porter Jr., and they can replace him with Green or Brown or Brown if they want to. Or, you know, Murray is probably their second-worst defender, and they've figured out plenty of ways to cover up for that. And, you know, Jokic is probably their quote-unquote third-worst defender, and he's really only bad at protecting the rim, and that hasn't been that much of an issue for them during the playoffs. It hasn't been. And and I think that there's also a corollary, which— Part of uh, there's there's this idea which I think is so salient to the modern NBA and and is at, you know the NFL current NFL much better than I do but an interesting difference between basketball and a lot of the other sports, which is how a single star can change things for everybody else. And so years ago, I argued that part of the reason that Russell Westbrook was so valuable is that he could he could elevate your baseline offensively. And it allowed Oklahoma City to play better defenders. And their offense wasn't always elite, but it was good enough. And that's, you know, he won regular season MVP. He didn't, you know, he wasn't the best player on the playoff team or anything like that. What Jokic does is actually a weird spiritual parallel to that, except that the offense is way better. So the idea is basically Jokic is so dominant offensively. He puts these other, he can put more limited players in positions to succeed. He could also put superior offensive players in positions to succeed as well. But that allows Calvin Booth, that allows Michael Malone to choose better defenders when the options present themselves without sacrificing the overall offense. Because when Jokic is on the floor, he he gives those players pathways. And also he is so dominant as a scorer and a passer himself and has no offensive weaknesses that their offense can be great even in the circumstances where he is one of their only good offensive players. They've had Jamal Murray, who's been overall very good in the series. So that part isn't as relevant in this series. But the general concept is you can do all these other things. And when you can play Aaron Gordon and Bruce Brown and Contavious Caldwell-Pope, who's had a weird defensive series overall, it gives you a buffer defensively, and you don't need that buffer offensively because you're going to have 120 offensive rating when Jokic is on the floor, basically whoever you play against. Yeah, I think that, that was basically the entire motivation behind their moves last summer, which I think you know sign- signaled you know not just that degree of confidence in Jokic, but also that Porter and Murray were going to be healthy, which obviously they weren't last year. Their willingness to say like, okay, um, we're trading Monte Morris, we don't really have a backup point guard anymore and we're trading will barton we don't have you know off the dribble creativity except for murray and Jokic anymore and we're going to replace them with kcp who is basically a you know standstill shooter on offense and we're going to bring in bruce brown who is going to be like everything essentially like he has closed games in place of all of the non Jokic and Murray guys in their starting lineup at different times throughout the year and just fill different roles depending on, you know, whatever the the situation calls for and obviously is basically their backup point guard at this point as well. And then their first round pick was a guy who is like a defender and kind of can't shoot, but can sort of, you know, move around a bit through the, uh, through, through like the, the, the slot and the zones and the things that he did last night to get baskets off of cuts. And they were just like, we have these three guys. That's going to be the foundation of our offense. Everyone else can fill in. And our priority is building versatility and strength on the wing and they have guys that can defend like brown and kcp can defend one and twos brown can sort of defend threes at times depending on how big they are and then gordon can defend anybody in the front court they have a matchup for pretty much any kind of wing player now which when you looked at last year they basically just had gordon and that was it and they were sort of dead in the water defending anybody else the other key part of the calculus for Denver is that there are some elements of defense that they aren't like there are some where they're not fantastic and some where they're, you know, like on the weaker side, but it's not catastrophic. And so like the Nuggets in the playoffs haven't really forced many turnovers. Their rim protection is intermittent. Let's put it that way. They're a wonderful defensive rebounding team have been Jokic is unbelievable at that, but they also, you know, they bring it from other teams. And I mean, depending on who you're facing, some opponents aren't putting a lot of effort on the on the offensive glass anymore. So they can do well there. They generally don't foul a ton. 
um, which which is huge. I think the the three shot fouls in game two were such an important subplot. That was an, another way that Miami was able to kind of like stay alive was all of those all the three shot fouls, and then they make some miscommunications, but like so they don't and they don't force a ton of turnovers. But all of those things like those are those are like small problems like those are more in the limb of like first world or one and a half world problems as opposed to like you give up a billion open threes or you give up a ton of dribble penetration or something else like the overall composition of their roster means that they're getting there and again we talked about like you talked about how the heat have such a large or such a small margin for well the nuggets their offense is so good that if those are the problems you can generally like do well and it's such a fascinating evaluation of where you, where they are versus where everybody else is, and I think they're correct. I think that the, the personnel is part of that, too, because the guys that they acquired, um, you know, in terms of KCP and Brown and Brown specifically, are all very athletic and all very long, and it allows them to help into the paint maybe a little bit more than other guys were in previous seasons and still be able to get out to the perimeter. Like there was a sequence last night where um, the ball got kicked out to, I think it was Caleb Martin and Brown ran him off the line and corralled him in the paint. And then it got swung to somebody else and the other Brown ran him off the line and corralled him in the paint. And it's like those guys are able to make that in, out, in, out dash so much better than the guys that they had in the same positions the past couple years because they a are you know veteran guys that know what they're doing but also because they have you know the 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 speed and the athleticism and the length that enable them to do those kinds of things and that helps cover up for you know the relative weaknesses of their two best offensive players who are you know are going to be on the court at pretty much all times and it's like what other teams want to do is essentially they want to put Jokic and Murray in the pick and roll together and sort of get things going that way. And the way that the other guys on the court are able to help in those situations allows those guys to play things more straight up and allows Jokic to, you know, not have to drop all the way back so that it's, you know, a, not a runway to the rim or, you know, he can come up a little bit further because he can trust that those guys are going to make the right rotations. That was why, you know, Porter not making those rotations at, on like three possessions in a row in game two. That's why he got pulled and Brown was in there for the rest of the game. Like the the guys that they brought in are basically the reason that they're able to play defense the way that they probably want to in the first place. It's a fantastic point and something that we will continue to monitor, not only for the rest of the series, but moving forward for Denver. And I also want to single out Christian Brown for praise. Uh, the great stat from Juan Marie that he was the first road, first rookie to have 15 or more points in a road finals win, so the bubble doesn't count, since Sam Cassell in 93. And Christian Brown did that. His jump shot, you know, he did make 35% of his threes this year. He only took one three-pointer and it hit the side of the backboard. Not exactly fantastic, but he did. He was effective offensively by understanding what he what they needed him to do in both transition, where I thought he did a very good job, and attacking the zone. Like, attacking the zone doesn't have to be through jump shooting or necessarily getting a guy to the nail. Both those things help. And what Brown was doing was just, he especially if his the person covering him was reacting to something, which you often are when a team has Murray and Jokic, but drive past them, force a reaction, force help. And you don't have to necessarily get the finish yourself, but you force that reaction and then you can give the ball to someone else. And Brown didn't make many mistakes. And he, of course, was a huge value add defensively. And I applaud Brown himself. I applaud Mike Malone for making, for for basically having somebody with those skills be, at least in game three, but I would say broadly in this series, a viable rotation player. Yeah, I had a, a Brown stat as well, which was that he was the first rookie period to score 15 or more points in less than 20 minutes off the bench in a finals game. Wow. Which is obviously, it's one of those, um, like, did you ever see Little Big League? Yes. Where they have like, oh, this guy's hitting 372 against left-handed pitchers on Wednesdays. It's like that kind of a stat, but it was still pretty interesting. But, you know, yeah, he, he did make a lot of his offense happen basically by reading when Jokic and Murray were getting extra attention and cutting through the exact right spot that was opened up by that extra attention. I wrote about this as well. He had eight of his... 15 points were just on slot cuts from or sorry uh yeah 
Six of them were on slot cuts when Jokic or Murray were doubled, and then there was one backdoor cut when Gordon got doubled because he was posting up either Lowry or Vincent. I can't re- remember which it was, but he basically just saw his teammate getting doubled and moved into the open spot and got himself an easy basket. And that's the kind of thing that you have to do when you're in, a, you know, a player like him, where you know the one three that he took went off like the side of the backboard, and and otherwise it was all just like moving around and getting into the open spaces and taking advantage of you know what the way that teams have to guard the best players on his team which you know interestingly is also what bruce brown does like sure. the, the two of them are somewhat similar in that you know bruce brown has a little bit more you know off the dribble and they trust him more to be like a, a point guard and to shoot threes more than they do um christian brown but they both have that skill where like the best thing they do offensively is read what's happening to the best guys and get into the space that's going to allow them to get you know the easiest baskets of their life years ago i did a podcast with adi joseph and we talked about like the skills that i i I, and i've said this you know like that having all players whatever their height be confident with the ball in their hands be comfortable fluid enough that they can dribble and make good decisions we're now kind of that that's been a real positive the thompson twins are kind of in that mold but there's another branch of that which is developing players who are comfortable and understand if they're not going to be that ball dominant player how to make not only how to make a positive impact but how to avoid the more negative impacts that exist and i think that the browns if we'll call them that bruce brown christian brown with denver at, at times they're really good developmental models for how to do that it helps when you have an all-universe offensive force like Nikola Jokic, but that idea of picking your spots, and honestly, like it's funny, I think about Jalen Brown with this and kind of the converse, understanding when you don't have it and giving the ball to someone who can create an advantage better than you, like that's an important part of this too. I think that's a little bit easier when you are um, the Browns on the same team as Jokic and Murray than when you're Jalen Brown and you're like sort of the 1B kind of guy. But I mean, yeah, knowing what type of player you're supposed to be and becoming the best version of that player is one of the most valuable things you can do in the NBA. I think you can look at Aaron Gordon for that, too, where there was a couple year period. And I wrote about this with Gordon earlier in the season. uh, And there was a story Zach Lowe wrote. um, I think it was like the first year that Frank Vogel was the coach in Orlando, which like how long ago was that? Um, where it was like Aaron Gordon was like, yeah, I'm going to be, you know, our version of Paul George now. And like, that is never what Aaron Gordon should have been. He always should have been what he is now, which is like basically Sean Marion. And it took getting traded to Denver for him to see that. And it, and it took also, I think for Murray and Porter getting injured and him spending another two years doing that on a team, even that still had Jokic for him to realize like, Hey, I can be so much better if I just do the things that I'm good at, at the best possible level. And as a side bonus, that will also help our team be even better because there are guys that can do things that I can't and I can do things that they can't. And it's like, when you realize what type of player you are and lock into that and become the best version of yourself, it's just, it's it's beautiful to see and it helps your team so much and it helps you so much. I think it gets you paid. I think it keeps you in the league for longer. It, you know, it keeps your, you know, sort of reputation around the league from becoming maybe what it shouldn't. Like the guys that try to play outside of themselves are the guys that nobody wants on their team. You know, like if... If, if Dion Waiters was what he was that for that one year in Miami where he was just like, you know, off the ball, beating closeouts and playing defense, if he was that for his whole career, he might still be in the league. But he tried to be more than that, you know? Like, J.R. Smith was at his best when he was on the Cavs with LeBron, and he was shoot threes, beat closeouts, play solid defense, do stuff off the dribble when you had the advantage and otherwise give it to LeBron. He's a dude that was so skilled where there were times that he could do so many things, but the more you asked him to do, the less effective he became. And the narrower you made what you needed from him, it allowed him to do more outside of that at a higher level because he wasn't asked to do it all the time. And it's sort of the same thing with some of these guys on the Nuggets. I cracked up um, because when you when you started that, the first guy in my head was Dion Waiters. Then he was the first guy that you brought up. 
And I understand why this is so hard to accept for, because you think about basically every player who comes into the NBA has been the best player on, they've been, almost all of them have been a prodigy since whenever they had their big growth spurt, and some of them long before that, you know, eighth grade, 10th grade, wherever we're talking here, and they've been the best player on their teams. Many of them, their teams have had immense success. And then you get to the NBA, and it's all of those people. And the way that these things filter out is that only some of them are so good that they get to still be that player. And then it becomes, where where can I fit it? Where, what can I do? And, and for some, it's still, you know, you're still dominant on ball sometimes. It's just that you don't have it enough in your hands. And I think Jamal Murray is a wonderful example of how that can work. I'm not sure. And not sure does not mean no. Not sure just means not sure. Whether Jamal Murray could be the engine behind a top half offense in the league as the like as the best offense player. I'm not sure. He could be. He could not be. I'm, I'm not sure. But he has such a phenomenal interplay with Jokic, understands his place within that. And there are times where I get mad where he's not passing the ball enough and everything else. But generally, he does a phenomenal job. And his passing in the second half of game three was a game changer. They did some blitzing and he took him a few possessions to solve it. He did really well. But I want to go back to Aaron Gordon, and you, you, as you said, you wrote about this early in the year, and I think, but it's it's a wonderful example for analysts and for young players, especially if you're a really talented one, of how this can work. So Aaron Gordon, the league was in a different offensive environment, to be abundantly clear, when he came into the league, and even, you know, well into his career. He never had a true shooting percentage better than 54% the entire time he was in Orlando. And his usage rate varied a lot. You know, usually it was in the low 20s, but he had one year where it was almost 25. Um, that was 17-18 with the Magic. Goes to Orlando, and or sorry, goes from Orlando to Denver. And after the some growing pains that first year, also was a little bit of a shorthanded team because that's right around when Jamal Murray got hurt. He's been above 60 each of the last two years. And that's the role shifting. That's narrowing the taking out some of the stuff that didn't work very well. And what's impressive about Gordon, and I know you've chronicled this in the past, is that his role within the offense actually isn't that much smaller than other than his like that crazy outlier year. But they've excised, in part because he's playing with the best offensive player on the planet, they've excised the least efficient parts of his game and maximized the other parts and has a player who can find him enough that it's he's still a significant part of the offense. Yeah, I mean, his usage this year is higher than it was last year. It's basically at the same level as it was, you know, his last couple seasons in Orlando. And what he's done is he's just become a finisher instead of a creator where, you know, like if you look at. Uh, if you go on uh, Basketball Reference, 26.4% of his shots this season were dunks. 26.4%, 181 dunks in 68 games. Last year, he had 130 in 75 games, and that was already his career high. His high before that was 104 in 78 games. Like, that's just and, – and I mean, like, if you just counted the dunks that he had off of assists – from Jokic he still would have been like just outside the top 20 in total dunks on the season like this is a guy who you know he took 49 percent of his shots from within three feet of the basket like no wonder he was so efficient you know 77 percent of his shots were twos this year career high um but he was able to get them at a volume that was high enough that it still was fine you know it's not like he's shooting like 80 percent on shots in the immediate area of the basket like when you're able to and and you look at it you know 63 percent of his twos were assisted this year when you look at what it was in orlando on average 49.5 percent like that's the difference between being able to be really efficient and being you know sort of stretched beyond your capabilities even if like you can do a decent approximation of it but this version of him is such a more valuable player because he wasn't able to do like what he's doing against Jimmy Butler defensively in the finals is not something that I think he would have been able to do on as consistent a basis playing the way he was in Orlando. You know, he was a pretty good defender during his time in Orlando. And there was like, you know, sometimes where, where you could see flashes of like, wow, look what this dude can do defensively. He's so much better now than he was then, not just because he's bigger and stronger, but also because he's able to put in the kind of effort that he is on that side of the ball because his still very productive offensive game doesn't ask as much of him individually. Lots more to discuss with Jared Dubin, but first a message from FanDuel. 
Make a fast break to FanDuel during the NBA playoffs because right now new customers can get a no sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's $1,000 back in bonus bets if your first bet does not win. I think it's really cool that they have the combination now of team-specific stuff. Sure, you can do the over-unders and, and all that, but also player props. And player props can be a fun way if you think, oh, this is a great matchup for Jokic or whatever player that you can get. I mean, Jamal Murray has his ups and downs. You can do all that through FanDuel, and that's why there's no better place to bet all the playoff action than America's number one sportsbook. Visit FanDuel.com slash Boston and get a no-sweat first bet up to $1,000. That's FanDuel.com slash Boston, B-O-S-T-O-N. FanDuel, official sports betting partner of the NBA. Must be 21 and over in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 deposit required. Refund issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. FanDuel is offering... Online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG. 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat. 1-800-9-WITH-IT. 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. 1-877-770-STOP, gamblinghelplinema.org, or you can call 1-800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org, 1-877-8-HOPE-NY, or text HOPE-NY, 1-800-522-4700, or visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net. Another group of players, so like we've mostly been talking about, let's call it young or pre-prime or in-prime guys that have to adjust their mentality and their role to fit their relative talent level. And Aaron Gordon, a, a very nice example of that. And, you know, he was traded to the Denver Nuggets in his age 25 season, but it was also his, I think that was his seventh NBA season because he came in so young and, you know, he's adapted and, and gotten there. There's another group of players that have to deal with this, and that is players as they age out of their prime. And oh, yeah. that is going to be a huge part of the next five years of the NBA that hasn't been talked about as much. And normally, superstar level players, like they they, they can often age gracefully. I mean, we've, we're seeing some ridiculous stuff from LeBron James, and he's, you know, like 38 years old, and we'll see where things go for him from here. Hopefully he plays next year. I expect that he will. But that, especially if you're coming, like whatever the level you're coming from, but especially if it's elements that will erode with age, like I mean, Russell Westbrook has been a very common stocking horse with this, but there are plenty of other ones and we're going to see it, you know, over these next couple of years, how you adapt to that reality is extremely important as well. Yeah. I mean, you can go back to, you know, guys like when, when we were growing up and then first coming into doing this where it's like you know tracy mcgrady tried to make the transition to becoming more of a role player but unfortunately injuries stopped the the transition and it never really was able to happen alan iverson sort of refused to do it and his career ended because of that vince carter fully made the transition and had an entire second career as like a pretty high level role player on a bunch of teams richard jefferson same sort of thing like you can see the guys that are able to do it is like you got you to gotta become a better shooter. You got to be able to make things happen without the ball in your hands. And you got to be able to defend multiple positions at at least a competent level. And then you're able to you know, extend your time in the league by a number of years. Give yourself a chance to play on teams with dudes that are you know, as good or better as you were when you were at your peak. Like LeBron doesn't have to make this transition. He's still one of the best, I don't know, 10, 15 guys in the league or something like that. Like he's he's still a guy who could pretty clearly be the best player on your team. It's just not where LeBron is on your team. Automatically, you are in the finals anymore, which like the dude is 38, 39 years old. Like, it's ridiculous that he's even still in the league. Like we're, we got, you know, Mello doing retirement videos. Dwayne Wade is eligible for the Hall of Fame this year. I think he's been out of the league for so long. Chris Bosh is already in the Hall of Fame, like and LeBron is still doing what he's doing like it's it makes no sense but yeah i mean there there are guys that i think have sort of set the blueprint for being able to transition from a star level player and what you need to do to do that and more than anything is just the willingness to do it like you have to accept that you're not the guy that you were but you can become a guy that is still good you know like and 
it's it's that sort of mental side that I think gives the most people the trip up. And uh, once you're able to get past that, if you're able to physically work on the skills that work in your new role, as opposed to what you what your previous role was, then you know you can become a much different. Even even a guy like Brook Lopez, sure. Look look what he became. Worked on you know his body, became a much better defender, and worked on his jumper. And you know every once in a while they'll still break out you know the 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 Brooklyn Brook kind of game where he's got you know his back to the basket and scoring twenty points in the post. Like we saw that in the year they went to the finals where he had that huge game when Giannis was hurt. Um, but for the most part, he is like a three and D center who, you know, might be the best rim protector in the league outside of a, you know, a small handful of guys like the, the, the template for you to become a, a good role player after being a star level player, whether that's, you know, a, an all-star or a superstar or a, you know, a co-star or whatever, the template is there. It's uh, about being willing to do it. The way this connects to, and I think it's one of the more important subplots that for logical reasons, hasn't been there as prevalent in the when the discussions of the 2023 offseason because so many of the key players this summer are a portion of what we expect their contracts to be will be post prime. And so Kyrie Irving, 31, Harden, 33, Chris Middleton, 31, Draymond, 33. And even if you want to include guys like, I mean, Jeremy Grant's 29. Like, the, the, if he gets a four-year contract, he'll probably be post-prime in, in the last couple of years of that. He hasn't been at the, like, uh, all-NBA level that those first four gentlemen have been. But uh, we always naturally think about contracts, about what the player is now. And in many circumstances, that is the more salient point, you know, for the 76ers or for the Dallas Mavericks. Well, Dallas is a little more complicated, but let's say, you know, what the player is now matters a lot. But if the Mavericks are making a bet, in some ways, especially them, on Kyrie Irving, and we could talk about the, 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 the expected value of said bet, but you're not just saying, what is Kyrie Irving right now? It's also, what is a 34-year-old Kyrie Irving? What is his game going to look like when he loses a little bit athletically? Op- what does it look like on offense? What does it look like on defense? What does it look like in terms of his mentality? And with Harden, and in some ways, I find Chris Middleton the most fascinating of that foursome in terms of the how his game ages, because my early indication was like, he'll be fine. But then sometimes the players who don't lean as much on their quickness actually are hurt more by aging because they don't have as many other things to go to. So that idea of you're not just committing to those four guys for right now, you're presumably committing for three, four years, being okay with that, with your projection of how their game is going to evolve is essential too. I mean, it might be the most important thing, like, because, you know, you're, you only get what they are now for one year, then they become something that might, and and you might not even get it for one year, depending, right? I mean, just like they are the player that they are. So you sign that player and they are that player, but you don't know, obviously what the future holds, like, especially as these guys get into their mid to late thirties and they start getting injured more and they start having to, you know, change their game in certain ways. Like, I mean, it's not just, you know, those four guys like Porzingis is 28 or he'll be 28 this off season. Like you're, you're paying for the year age 28 to 32 seasons of a guy who's seven, three and has had injury issues, even though he did play really well this past year, you know, Vucevic will be 33 next year. Draymond is 33. Fred Van Vliet is 29. Harrison Barnes is 31. Jeremy Grant's 29. Karis LeVert will be 29. Like, you know, all of these guys that are free agents, and stuff, even Christian Wood now is 28. Brooke Lopez is already 35. Josh Hart is 28. Like, I'm just looking at, you know, on Track, they have like the top free agents. Like, all of these guys are like late 20s, early 30s. It's also the nature of free agency and unrestricted free agency in the NBA is that generally speaking, those are the players that you can add to your team most cleanly are players who you're getting a portion of it. And some of us would prefer a system that worked differently. We're not going to be dealing with that, at least for now. And so those are for a team, let's say like the Houston Rockets, and you don't need everyone to be on the same timeline. I think that there have been incidences where people are too zealous on that front, especially fans, honestly, more fans than front offices. Um, But let's say you're Houston and maybe you get hardened, maybe you don't. But the idea that, and I mean, the Bucks are dealing, are going to be dealing with this over the next couple of years if they retain everybody and there's no guarantee that's going to happen of, well, how does 
age 34 Chris Middleton fit into our plans? How, like we know we can figure out how the current one does. And the also the cap is changing, evolving, everything else like that. And these are really complicated, fraught, important decisions. Especially when you're the Bucks and, you know, uh, you have one of the small handful of best players on the planet who has gotten used to playing these guys and they're still a really good team. They're just coming off, obviously, an incredibly disappointing end to their season. And, you know, you've got Middleton heading into his mid-30s, Brooke heading into his late-30s, and they're both free agents. Drew is under contract through his sort of mid-30s. And, like, what else do you have on the team beyond those guys? Like, if you're, let's say you decide, like, you know what, we don't want to pay for the mid-30s of Chris Middleton. Who on the team is replacing what Chris Middleton brings? Like, there, there is not a deep wealth of talent beyond those top guys, and they have to be comfortable with what they're going to become over the next few years, or they have to make, like, a pretty serious reset very quickly, which I really don't see happening. <laughs> It's a lot to ask, for sure. And that also dovetails into the kind of the last thing. I, I don't want to dwell on this too much, but I, the last big, big hit thing that I wanted to talk to you about, and that's you and I are both, you know, like we met on Mid-Level Exceptional blog that, that formerly existed. And we don't have access to the full collective bargaining agreement right now, but the terms that we know, like the term sheet and everything else, have they've set the table for it being a lot harder to be an expensive team, particularly for a long period of time. And we can argue about the merits of that approach. I think it's a very bad thing for the league in terms it's going to distribute talent and like we'll have less great teams and that could lead to more parity and everything else. But I don't think we need to spend time on that. Instead, I want to focus on something that's near and dear to both of our hearts, which is team building and team retention. And when the restrictions are the way they are, and this is not just a circumstance, and I would have fully supported this, where having having a team that's deep into the tax is just way more expensive. What they've done in this CBA is they have made it harder to re- to retain or like keep your talent level up in those circumstances. And some part of that is just you're waving bye-bye to the taxpayer mid-level and they also weaken the taxpayer mid-level. And then, but then there are other parts where it's like, oh no, you're actually, you kind of have to get worse to an extent. The frozen pick goes in that line. The restrictions in terms of how much money you can bring back in trades and cash you can send out in trades. And that is going to change the calculus for franchises like the Bucks. And I know a lot of people brought the Warriors, but I actually think it's significantly more relevant to the next batch of teams. Maybe that ends up being the Celtics. Maybe that ends up being the Nuggets, who could be in this conversation two, three years from now, but we will have fully internalized the rules. And so do they treat the second apron as a hard cap, either in actuality or kind of functionally? Yeah, I mean, they basically have decided to punish teams for having too many good players, which is completely ridiculous and will have all sorts of unintended consequences that they don't want to actually happen because every single CBA negotiation, the owners decide that they have one big problem with the league and they have to fix it no matter what. And their fix is always bad because it's too short-sighted and they don't think through all the ramifications. Like when they basically got rid of extensions because they were, they didn't like that, uh, Carmelo got an extended trade with the Knicks or, you know, when they got rid of um, players being able to get, you know, a ton more money from uh, or, or basically when they created the ability to, to land for, for home teams, whatever you want to call it, to pay so much more money to the players because they thought that that would have kept Kevin Durant in Oklahoma City, which they really did not know Kevin Durant very well. But immediately after that, we saw the Bulls trade Jimmy Butler and the Kings trade DeMarcus Cousins because they didn't want to pay the Supermax. Like, they just never think through the ramifications of these things that they want to put in the CBA. And it's just not going to work out the way that they think it is. And I agree with you that the teams that are going to come up against these issues a few years down the line are the ones that are more likely to be affected by it. Because, like, the Warriors, like, they're already dealing with that now. And, like, the decisions that they have to make have to be made anyway because the, the salary is so high. But we're talking about the teams that they're not there yet, but they have players good enough that they will get there. And they have to decide whether they want to do it or whether they want to not do it and build their team in a completely different way. Exactly. And so for the the Celtics and the Nuggets and, and you know, eventually maybe it'll be the Spurs or somebody else. And 
it's I, I applaud the idea that they've done of making the lower levels. And this was another thing they completely screwed up in a previous CBA. They made the lower levels of the tax too burdensome, and so it led to it led to a circumstance where like they were trying to make it harder on big money teams, but instead they made it harder on smaller teams because they just weren't willing to go into the tax at all. And so they they've improved that. I'm not going to say they fixed it just yet, but like it's it's so incredible to me. That you have all these circumstances, and they th- there's also I mean it's 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 hilarious because it's happened so many times now that and I the owners are the large mover here I from what I could glean from context, but there's always such an aggressive reaction to the last way that a team succeeded. Well, so you're pulling up that rope, which does two things: one, it makes it harder for a team to succeed in that way again, but also you've actually made life easier. On the team, you're pulling the ladder up, and the te- you're pulling the ladder up, and the teams that are that succeeded in that way are already on the boat. Like you're you're hel- you're helping them by hurting everyone else in a very funny way that the owners have never really fully understood. And so right now, you know, like if Lakeup is willing to pay the money, if Steve Ballmer is willing to pay the money, then they're making it harder for teams to challenge those teams in terms of overall talent level. Now, aging is going to help that process along as well, but it is such a weird ripple effect of this. Yeah, I mean, I had basically the same reaction. Like, they don't think through the ramifications of the things that they want. They just want to solve whatever they think is the the big problem of the day that, you know, will, like, put the players in their place or whatever it is that they think and show that they really have the power in the league or whatever. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I never understand the the motivation from their side to like fix this one specific thing that we think is the big problem with the league as opposed to like they should they're the ones that are going to be in the league for so much longer than the players they should be thinking on such a longer timeline than the players are but they're always looking backward for sure and there there are you know lots of competing pressures involved from from both sides and from the players perspective i also wonder like they might have more regrets from the cba than than some are thinking i mean oh, they yeah. they oh, gave yeah. up a lot of different elements at different parts of it like the stuff with the combine which is again not going to affect the current players they pulled up the route ladder in terms of other players but also just from a practical matter it is going to be significantly harder for good players to end up on great teams. And that is a narrower problem than everything else. And you can argue that in terms of overall money to the Players Association, elements like the strengthening of the salary floor, well, that will add more money to the league. But it kind of adds more money to the league in a way that I think is going to end up being empty calories and is not particularly helpful like it, it's it's a more it's so funny that in some and in certain circumstances they're like very focused on not letting like you know keeping things a little bit narrow for the best of the best but then my theory of what's going to happen here is that for some of these four contracts it's going to be teams getting there through a contract for a player who is not that great but main it allows them to maintain flexibility and then the higher end teams it's the element is the story is going to be proactivity and so it's get a player and instead if you're going to limit the money you can take back in trades they're just going to start creating these gigantic walking trade exceptions and is it better for the league if this random player who isn't necessarily that great gets 15 million from the clippers because they have bird rights on him and that's the only way they could add somebody else versus having that as a viable option with the taxpayer mid-level or through even a trade than it would have been otherwise. I, my, my answer is it's going to be worse overall. I am right there with you. I remember that summer where Miami signed like four guys to basically walking trade exception contracts, but they were, you know, like two or three years long because they were guys that had just led them to that. They had gone like whatever it was, 11 and 30 and then 30 and 11 or 10, 31 or 31 and 31 and 10, whatever it was. So they were like, all right, we'll reward these guys. And they got, you know, waiters and Olenek and Josh Richardson and whatever on like these 14, 15 million dollar a year contracts. And then, you know, they they spun Richardson into Jimmy Butler and they spun Olenek into I think he was in the Oladipo trade, if I'm remembering correctly, which was technically the Harden trade. Or no, it was after the Harden trade. It was Harden got traded to Brooklyn and Oladipo went to Houston and then Houston traded Oladipo to Miami and got, I think, Kelly Olynyk in that deal and then they bought did. him out or what? It, like, ugh, I don't know. It's all kinds of weirdness. So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see where these things go. And, of course, there'll be a lot of time until the next collective bargaining agreement. Um, 
Is there anything else? I'll open the floor to you. Playoffs, offseason, that's standing out to you as something that you're interested in, something that you're going to be monitoring closely? I have not gotten too much into the draft yet, so I'm excited to see you know what these guys beyond you know Wembanyama and Scoot are really about. I'm going to have to start watching a lot, a lot of guys in a very short amount of time in these next couple of days or couple of weeks, I guess. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that's sort of the next big thing up. And then, you know, free agency, like there's, it seems like there's a bunch of teams that want to do a bunch of stuff, but Hollinger has written about this. They're kind of stuck. How do those teams sort of get themselves unstuck or are the teams that have assets to do things, but maybe not as quite, quite as much motivation as the stuck teams, are they able to get players at a lesser cost simply because, there isn't as much competition. Like, I, I, I don't really know what's going to happen there. So, you know, it's it's off-season stuff. Like, that's what's coming up next, you know? It, it is. I have two more threads that I want to lay out there for you. One is I brought up proactivity. as That's the big word to me for the high-spending teams. And what, what tables are they setting? So I think the Clippers are going to create some walking trade exceptions. The Warriors probably won't because they're – I mean, if Draymond leaves, maybe they do something in that brain. But – that is going to be a key thing to watch because when your flexibility is going to get a lot more limited, then you might like this might even be for the Clippers picking up that non-guarantee for a court. Like they might be willing to do that just to create that spending power over the long term, which would be incredible uh, in terms of the overall expenditure for Steve Bombers. That's one is like these teams. And I've heard some theories that it could be players as well, that like when the universe is about to narrow that they try to make their way sooner rather than later if they're under contract. Because if you want to get to good team X, you're not going to be able to do it two years from now. So you might want to agitate early. I'm not sure of that yet, but I think I think we should be ready for the possibility. The other one... I think uh, just related to that, sure. I think um, Fred Katz brought up a good point related to that where... You know, the the Knicks did not make their, you know, quote unquote star trade last offseason. And right now it doesn't necessarily look like the kind of star that you would want to trade for is necessarily available this offseason. But their window to do it while Jalen Brunson is on a discount contract is this summer. Because next summer, he's opting out of the fourth year of – or sorry, it's, it's this summer and next summer. Correct. Because after that, he's opting out of the fourth year of his contract. So they basically have to do this in the next 18 months if they're going to do it. Because after that, they no longer have their fir- their first star. And that doesn't necessarily mean the best player, but just the star player on their team. They don't have that guy on a discount contract anymore. And it gets much more difficult to acquire the second guy or the third guy. Right. And so they're going to have to be one of those, you know, proactive fast movers possibly. And that's another parallel a way that the NBA has become more like the NFL is that having below market contracts is going to be a much bigger deal in the NBA over the next eight years than it has been previously. Because I mean, I mean, that was what set the table for the Warriors getting Durant and everything else. Like it has been important in the past, but just overall, and that changes pretty quickly in the NBA because you're only on a rookie scale deal for four years. So that's going to be worth watching. But then the other big storyline for me is the kind of like the upper middle class of of free agents this year. So a lot of ink spilled. I did a whole piece for The Athletic on like who might get the most guaranteed money. But I'll throw out some player names. Like I'm really interested in Max Struess, Austin Reeves, Gabe Vincent, Kuzma. I mean, to an extent, Dylan Brooks, like his situation is just so bizarre and in some ways unprecedented. But also guys maybe a little bit lower in the pecking order like PJ Washington. And my theory is some of those guys are going to get paid and some of them are not. And why that happens is going to be just there aren't that many chairs left when you sit down. And so some teams are going to get huge values and some teams are going to get huge bills. I think you see that a lot. And, you know, you made the comparison to like the NFL before, like you see teams get bargains by waiting for like the second wave of free agency, where instead of paying the linebacker $10 million, you get a similar quality player for $6 million. And it's like, I think that is part of how the Nuggets wound up with this team where nobody signed Bruce Brown on day one of free agency. They gave him a two year deal for the the mini mid level exception, six and a half million dollars a year. Like, you know, you can wind up with something like that. I think you see it pretty often um, with centers because unless you're a superstar, you're probably not getting paid a ton of money. And unless you're a superstar, there's not that much of a functional difference between you and the next backup center for the most part. So you can get, you know, your backup center for 
two years, $15 million, as opposed to, you know, a, a team paying a whole lot more, or you get a backup center for one year and $5 million or whatever. Like it's, it's so much easier to land these players. Um, and it all just is based on like, like you said, who does not have a seat when the music stops and you can get values that way. Well, that's all for now. Uh, thank I you. I also think actually oh, go ahead. quickly. Um, go ahead. Um, I think that this is something related to the Knicks too. They have signed a bunch of declining contracts. Um, Jalen Brunson's contract declines. Mitchell Robinson's contract declines. Julius Randle's contract declines, I think, for one year and then goes back up for the final year. Declining contracts because like, if you if you can afford to give players more money up front and decline, that just creates so much more room for, for you down the line. It's obviously not easy to get players to agree to that because nobody wants to make less money. <laughs> in one year than they did before, but also, you know, time value of money. The money is more valuable now than it is in the future, but it, uh, it's, it's a tough sell to get guys to do that. But if you can, it, uh, it really helps your, your flexibility in the future too. Sacramento, I, Vlade Divac, not necessarily my favorite general manager, but they had some front loaded contracts, which has worked out very well for them. And yeah, it, it can, it can do that. And, and as the league makes the, extension rules more flexible i wish they'd made them even more flexible like there are benefits there and as you mentioned the time value money like yeah there's a a part of it that it sucks when you were a 18 million dollar player now you're a 14 million dollar player but you already banked that 18 million and that's pretty good and so the sales pitch to players like i don't know exactly how contracts are negotiated but i'm guessing a lot of it is total value and general structure and then the specifics of that can be a little bit more flexible for the team you know so it's like you negotiate Four years, eighty million, and then a player option in the fourth year. But you could structure it. You could, stru- you know, like if the team wants to has the capacity to front load it, then they then they can do that. And so, it's a great point. And there also could be. I mean, the, I'm sure teams will be like a Houston could be a great calibrator here. Of you could say, oh, the cap's going up, everything else. Like you can you can front load it or you can back load. It's not that big a deal. Yeah, but if you front load, it's even better. And when you consider oh, that, yeah, for like that's it's to bring it back to football again. Um, the 49ers, they were able to build the team that they have now because when they saw they traded for Jimmy Garoppolo and gave him a contract extension, they put this balloon payment of like fifty million dollars in the first year, and everything after that, he was getting paid like one of the you know lowest quarterback salaries for the most part, and like almost none of it was guaranteed. They could have moved on like for for no cost, and that allowed them to build such a better team. Because they had this big chunk of cap space in one year, and they just put so much of Garoppolo's contract in that one year and then spread the rest of it out over the rest. Um, you can't do that in the NBA. You can't have like one big lump sum and then you know $1 million in other seasons. But the NFL allows you to do that. And uh, I, I think teams should get more creative. Like if they have the ability to front load stuff, like I guess it later on could come into play where you may not have enough matching salary for trades. Or if you want to sign a guy to an extension, the salary may be too low. Um, but there are a lot of situations where it would be beneficial. Miles Turner, I think, is a good example of like you get a narrow window. Years ago, it was Robert Covington back in the Hinky era, but they're they're the exceptions are extremely valuable, and working the angles is so essential. And not every team has that flexibility. You know, the Miles Turner situation was anomalous for a bunch of reasons. They use some of their cap space to do a version of a balloon payment, and then they can work it forward. But yeah, it's it's. It's a lot of fun, and as the league gets, you know, as the money gets bigger, having somebody who can, I mean, Miami is the ultimate example of this. Like, a big part of how they've been able to do what they do is the cap genius of Andy Ellsberg and the willingness of Riley and their overall organization to, like, listen to the people who can make these sorts of solutions. I was with you until you gave credit to Pat Riley. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but there and, and there's nowhere <laughs> we can go from this, so I will thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me, man. Always a good time. Thanks again to Jared Dubin for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work wherever it gets posted. He does some great work for Last Night in Basketball, which is his blog. And then he also does great NFL work. And then whoever else is smart and lucky enough to publish his work, you can see it there. You can also follow Jared on Twitter at jadubin5, J-A-D-U-B-I-N, and the number five. Love having him on. And these recordings that are covering both key games and the offseason. I love to have people who can talk about both well. Jared, of course, certainly fits that description. If you want to support the show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can 
Subscribe and download every episode, whatever podcast player you use. Real GM Radio is never going to come out on a specific day of the week, so that allows it to pop into your podcast player whenever that happens. You can also help other people find the show. You can use social media, word of mouth, tell other people, hey, this episode or the show in general might be something you're interested in. You can also help other people find the show by leaving a rating and review in the podcast player of your choosing, Spotify, Apple, wherever. And the most important thing you can do for this podcast and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors. For us, that is FanDuel. FanDuel.com slash Boston, and you get that no sweat first bet up to $1,000. You can also check out my other work, Dunked On, Dunked On Prime, going incredibly strong right now, not only breaking down every game of the finals, but we're doing our off-season previews for all 30 teams. We are doing... Our scouts, we just did Cam Whitmore on Wednesday night, and we've already gone through the loose consensus top four picks, including an extended, I think we did well over an hour on Victor Wembanyama, which was a lot of fun. And we'll also do the mock offseason, which is one of our big things that will be closer to the start of the actual offseason. can also check out the playback broadcast we do. It's a little harder for U.S. viewers right now because the there's a rights thing that's going on with the NBA, which is going to be great in the future. It's just a little bit harder right now. But international people, you can check that out. We tweeted out playback. It's a fantastic service. Very excited about it. And you can also check out my written work at The Athletic. Have a couple irons in the fire. I also wrote a piece last week about the unrestricted free agents who might make the most money, which was a, a fun one to do. And I have a couple that should be coming out in the next little while, depending on how quickly I turn around, editorial, all that fun stuff. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I'm not the greatest at replying, though I intend to, but I read everything because that's that's what's important, and I will always be upfront with you about that. And that is all for now, so thank you so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.